Key Aero, your aviation destination. Historic Aviation. Hello and welcome to the Flight Pass podcast. As we haven't heard from them for a while, we thought it would be nice to change of pace to chat with the Flight Pass team again. Our topic this week is literature. We sent a lot of books to review, but I thought it would be good to hear about some of the team's personal favourite. What are the books that have stuck in our minds? What did we return to time and time again? And is there anything that really left an impression on us and made us who we are today, so to speak? Is there anything that we would take on a desert island with us rather than a complete work to Shakespeare? And as Tara is too important to give us too much of her time, we have to nip off and hurry. We'll start with her. So Tara, what have you got for us? Well, my first one, which is probably the first book I ever read that had anything RAF related in it, was Going Solo by Roald Dahl. I don't know if any of you have read that. Yeah, I've read that one. So Roald Dahl, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Matilda, SEO Trot. He was like my all-time favourite author. And it turns out that he wrote a book about his early life. In 1939, he joined the RAF and became a pilot in World War II, which I think I sort of picked up this book when I was younger, thinking, oh my God, it's another Matilda, or it's another Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And then it was this man talking about being shot at in a hurricane. And I was like, oh, okay, this is quite heavy, but also quite good. He starts off in 1938, he goes to Africa and then obviously World War II breaks out in 1939 and he joins the RAF. He trains to fly in a tiger moth, which is quite cool because I love me a tiger moth. And then he goes on to fly Gloucester gladiators and hurricanes. So in the book, it's basically just how his life went in the RAF. I think he flew hurricanes in Greece. He went from Africa to Greece and started flying his hurricane in Greece. He was in a plane crash. And there's one bit that sticks in my mind where he says they didn't think at all that these Germans that had shot him down would find anything but the empty plane. And then he says they came up and there I was still alive and just sort of shocked the hell out of them. So that always sticks in my mind as one of my favourites. What do you think about that, James? Weirdly enough, I read that exact chapter last night on my Kindle. That's odd. It is really bizarre. I've been trying to read it for a little while, but that exact bit. And yeah, he was flying a gladiator to his first squadron and he landed in the desert to refuel. And then the CO of the squadron gave him the wrong direction. So he flew off in completely the wrong direction, ran out of fuel as it was getting dark, crash landed and rode his gladiator off. That's it. Yeah, he didn't get shot down. So I don't know why. I remember, for some reason, when I was younger, I used to sit at the dining room table and read books. And I remember everybody doing things around me and having their dinner and putting their dinner down and me just being glued to this book. So I picked this book up thinking it would be another Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And then it turned out to be this quite dark, actually, account. It starts off and he's at training and he's driving all these Land Rovers and he's doing all this sort of stuff. And then it gets quite dark and he's now fighting and he's a fighter pilot. I expected Oompa Loompas and I got Hitler <laughs> and like the Luftwaffe. So I think that for me was probably my first and probably favourite historic aviation book. I think the same as you. When I read it as a kid, I didn't like it because I was expecting it to be George's Marvelous Medicine or something. It's actually a true account of being a fighter pilot. The autobiography of Roald Dahl, it's just called Going Solo. Which obviously is, is quite a fitting title for the book. Think about it. He, he does go solo flying. 
I think it's a very good book for any child to read, though, because it's first-hand account. And also, I didn't realise that Roald Dahl was that old. When I was growing up, I thought he was in his 30s, but he wasn't. He was in his 80s. So, yeah, that's my book. It's a good gateway book, isn't it, really? Because if you're a kid and you like reading Roald Dahl, you're kind of interested in World War II. You read Roald Dahl and it gets you in, doesn't it? Definitely. I'd seen films and stuff beforehand and I'd spoken to family that had been in the REF but I don't think in terms of books or anything or literature I hadn't really read anything up until that point and it was definitely an accidental find but it was a very good find I was probably nine or ten when I read it so it was definitely an accidental find because it is one of his heavier books but it's very very good I definitely think that any younger person should start off with reading that kind of thing. Did he write that before his bestsellers then Charlie and Chocolate Factory etc? It was like part two of his biography, wasn't it? He wrote Boy. He wrote Boy, which was growing up and then going solo was at the end of school. I don't think it was before his bestsellers because Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the film, there was one out in the 70s or 80s. And I think going solo came out in 86. So I think it was sort of in conjunction with his bestsellers. And I mean, when you think about it, Roald Dahl is a very childish author isn't he you've got your umpa lumpers and you've got your george's marvelous medicine and magic tortoises and then you've got this really serious book that comes out there and it is about him serving in the royal air force you say that but i think his books are quite dark anyway because you look at all the kids and that they've all got parents who've been killed or something happens to everybody it's quite horrible you know people get drowned in chocolate or i guess i see what you mean there actually i think he treads a fine line i suppose for children's books I think your second choice is something that all of us might know a bit better. What's that one? Yes, definitely. So my second choice, it's actually only been released very, very recently. It's called Rise to the Challenge, and it is by a guy called David Duker. And we had him on the Fly Pass podcast last year to talk about his project called the Tally Ho Project. So basically what he does with various other individuals is he goes into schools and educates them on the stories of Battle of Britain pilots and uses it to teach these children morals and values. And he's just released a book actually where he details all of his meetings with these Battle of Britain pilots because he's met them all, well not all of them, but he's met a fair few of them. So he's put it all in his book and he's used this as like a platform. If he can't get into those schools, the kids can read them themselves. So. That's my second choice. It's really, really good, actually. I think it's called Rise to the Challenge, Life-Changing Lessons from the Battle of Britain Generation. He uses it to educate kids on how Battle of Britain pilots and the people of that generation were some of the strongest and bravest humans in history, I suppose. Why don't we hear what Steve's got? My first choice, funnily enough, is a book that has nothing to do with World War II or, or history but has everything to do with flying and the love of flying. And it's called Propeller Head, and it's by an author called Anthony Woodward. It's not fiction, it's, it's an account of his real experience, but uh, it's described on the cover by The Observer as, and I quote, what Nick Hornby did for football, Anthony Woodward has done for flying. Wonderful. It's so good I read it twice. Basically, it's the story of, of Anthony Woodward, who is determined to learn to fly, and he mainly wants to fly because he thinks that it will impress this girl at work he's got his eye on. In the end, it, it kind of does. But by that time, he's moved on so much and he's so much in love with flying. He's kind of not so interested in 
pursuing her so much. But his his route into flying uh, microlights is strewn with peril and disaster at every uh, at every step. And he writes about it in such a funny way that um, you really are kind of drawn to it and, and sucked in. And there's a kind of a, a it's a, there's kind of a gentle humour to it. Like at the end, there's a, a glossary of terms, because as you will know, there are so many confusing terms in aviation that you need to have a glossary. But even the description of the glossary reads as follows. It says, aviation, as well as retaining its monopoly on the best crashes and the most wasted time of any motorised activity, also leads the field in acronyms, jargon and technical terms. Even the Biggles books needed a glossary. He then describes his own glossary as, its accuracy should be relied upon under no circumstances whatsoever. So it's full of thrills and spills and mini disasters and mini triumphs. The descriptions of flying are wonderful. That's one of the main things that compels you to it. And it's a particularly moving chapter when he he's, he realizes he's flying over what used to be USAAF World War II bases, and he begins to feel an affinity for those young men and realizes that even though his route into aviation is very humble by comparison, there is still that thing that connects him with the ghosts of those many young men who rose from those bases. And that's a wonderful description. And there's also some really, really scary stuff where he just makes some terrible decisions and he's, he's flying a little contraption of a thing that's run by a lawnmower engine called a thruster. But yeah, I hearty, even if you don't particularly like aviation, I hearty recommend Propellerhead by Anthony Woodward. It came out in 2001, Harper Collins. An all-round great read. Uh, Desangra, I've not, I've not heard of that one. As you say, if it's done just for aviation, what Nick Cormier does for football, then good things. That's the thing, yeah. You don't need to be passionate about flying to read it, but it helps if you are. He's in a group. He can't afford to pay for the microlight himself. And the, the, the other people he's in the group with are eccentrics. You've got to be, I mean, f- feel free to write in microlight pilots, but I think you've got to have something about you to fly to fly microlights. And maybe that's a certain amount of eccentricity, a certain amount of determination, bloody-mindedness, etc. So it draws together a group of unusual people and they have plenty of exploits. No one dies, <laughs> but uh, they do come pretty damn close to that. Flying today is just serious business as well, isn't it? And I suppose that if you're flying a microlight, it's kind of seat your pants stuff still, isn't it? It's like the Biggles days, you know, climbing and away you go. Exactly. He's got, a, he's got the engine of a lawnmower. That's the only thing that's propelling his little so-called thruster along. There are times when he's like going backwards because <laughs> he, he can't make headway. But there are other times when he's just, he's just zooming around the place in and out of the clouds, loving every second of it. So it's a very personal account. It's very funny. It's quite scary. It's all those things. You don't need to be a pilot to appreciate it. Just a really good read. So what's your second choice? Second choice is quite, quite different. This goes back to 1995 when I was in my early 20s. And what happened was, as a child, I was massively into aircraft and air shows, particularly historic aircraft. But I got into my teens and did the usual teen stuff and just forgot all about that stuff. But got into the end of my teens and my early 20s and I began to rediscover it all, took myself off to air shows and began to see it all from an adult's eyes. And my parents brought me for Christmas a book called Winged Victory, which is the recollections of two RAF legends, that's the Air Vice Marshal Johnny Johnson and the Wing Commander Percy Lucas, who's better known as Laddie Lucas. And now Johnny requires, I'm sure, no introduction, top scoring, Spitfire race, legend, etc. Laddie Lucas commanded uh, 249 Squadron in the Battle of Malta, 
for which he won the DFC, and he was later put in charge of 616 Squadron and won the DSO as well, as did Johnson, of course. Basically, it's the story of it's the story of World War II, but it's through the eyes of these two great um, fighting leaders, and it kind of flits from one story to the next, looking at all the various campaigns. Really well illustrated, quite easy to read, and it just inspired me really you know these were the stories i wanted to read i didn't really want to know about the, the technical details and i didn't need to understand what dihedral meant and all that stuff i wanted to hear about the people and these were remarkable stories that sort of as a young man really inspired me to just dig ever deeper and thankfully the very next year the very next year after this came out i see from looking at my book as i met johnny johnson at duxford and he signed my book and he said steve bb with all good wishes johnny johnson duxford 15th of september 1996 so to have that connection between history and the present was just an incredible thing for me to experience and, and to live through and we obviously we can't do that now because virtually all of these guys are sadly long gone but thank god i discovered this and was inspired by it when i did partly thanks to my parents, because through then I, I not only got to read this stuff, but uh, I got to meet Johnny Johnson and many other famous pilots. And well, I ended up working for a little magazine called Fly Past as well, which wasn't too bad. How funny is that though? Because I'm, I must have been at the same air show as you and I didn't want to bother Johnny Johnson. There's my copy of Wing Leader that I bought at Duxford, but I never got him to sign it. Well, he, I got that as well. and He signed that for me as well. <laughs> I could have, I could have been Steve Beebe, but I, you know, I was, I was too polite to get in there and uh, have a chat. Johnny loved signing things. I was at one event at Eldington, the Yorkshire Air Museum, many, many years ago, where there were so many of these legends gathered. And one chap came up to Johnny Johnson and produced a, a cigarette packet from the nineteen fifties that Johnson had signed. I thought, Do you remember signing this in the nineteen fifties? And oh, Johnny was looking at this, thing, goodness me! So if he was willing to sign cigarette packets. I think he'd have been more than happy to sign your copy of Wing Leader. Too late now, isn't it? It's sadly too late now. Well, weirdly enough, my choice, I'm going to jump in before you, John, is similar to yours. It's like a compendium of three all-time classic biographies. And I bought this when I was nine or ten from the jumble sale at my local school. Still in its cellophane wrapper, and it cost me 50p at the time. And say so it, it contains Enemy Coast Ahead, The Last Enemy, and Reach for the Sky. And I think the book that stood out most for me, in fact, I know, was Reach for the Sky. I read this before I saw the film with Kenneth Moore, and I can't tell you how many times I've read it since. And I think The Legend of Douglas Bard looms quite large in my life because of this book. Enemy Coast Ahead, I liked it, but because there was lots of other stuff before you get to the dams raid, it didn't quite gel with me as much. I also like the fighter pilot side of things more, and I think with The Last Enemy, because it's more about the, his experience after being shot down. I think Reach the Sky was just the one that really touched on my nerves more than anything. And I, I think as a way into reading about World War II, I mean, this this got me where I am now. This, this really ignited my interest more than any other book, I would say. I can totally understand that because there's there are few greater characters in all of World War II than Douglas Bader. He's such a legend. And that figures in the book of Winged Victory that I mentioned because he flew with Johnny Johnson. He inspired Johnny Johnson to become the pilot that he was. And there's that wonderful story that's about how Barda was eventually brought down, which at the time of Reach for the Sky, at the time of Johnny Johnson's work, we, no one really knew how Barda had come to be brought down. And it was only through the work of, who I greatly respect this chap, historian named Dilip Sarka, who came up with the, uh, the now pretty much proven theory that Barda was shot down by friendly fire. 
Dilip Sarkar held that information back because the British pilot that accidentally shot Barda down was still alive and in, in, his, in his last years. I'm not going to mention his name now. It is public knowledge, but there's no point in mentioning his name. But the, he, held, he held that uh, information back until this poor old chap had, had passed away. He didn't want to cause him any anguish in his, in his last years. But yeah, the Barda story and, and, and that whole, whole controversy about how he was brought down and his legs and his time in Colditz after that. And, He's such a determined man. He wasn't universally liked. That's because to, for him to get from the point of, of being of having no legs to being a top fighter leader in World War II took the most extraordinary amount of, let's face it, balls, basically. He would have been written off, but he did it through his own bloody-mindedness, basically. He had to have that, I am going to do this and I don't care what you think attitude to get where he got to, you know, which didn't always please everybody. But my God, what a, what a character and, and what a story it was. How about you, John? Are you familiar with Barda's legend? I was sort of into that a long time ago, but I haven't refreshed my knowledge in recent times. So I should read it. I mean, in fact, all those books mentioned, yeah, sound really intriguing. Because it's quite a lot of places you go to where there's, there's a lot of Barda stuff. So obviously Duxford, you go to Duxford and they've got all, all the pictures and stuff there. But also Goodwood, which is RAF West Hampton. There's the statue of him there, isn't there? Yes, and quite, quite right. Uh, Goodwood was formerly RAF West Hampnett, home of the, uh, of the Tangmere Wing, which is where, as I just mentioned, Douglas Bardo and Johnny Johnson and many other great names flew from together. And it was flying from there. They had the audacity to fly out over the, over the channel into France to engage anything they found in the air at that point. They were flying the Spitfire Mark V at the time. When that came up against the Fokker Wolf 190, it was pretty much outclassed. But um, it was in August of 41 that Barda's luck finally ran out. I think he'd led something like 62 fighter sweeps or something like that before, before he was brought down. Yeah, that whole, that whole thing, RAF West Hampton, now Goodwood, enshrined in legend. So many great names associated with that. And it's great that we have Barda's statue there as well. And then my second choice is a work of fiction that I'm sure a lot of our readers will be familiar with, but Piece of Cake by Derek Robinson. And I've got a couple of copies of this, but... When I was a kid, I would go to my local library, St. Barnabas, and I would get it out on repeat. So every time I had to go back, I would take it back, and then I would get it out again the following week. So if anybody wanted to ever get this book out from the library in Leicester and St. Barnabas, you're out of luck, because I had it pretty much for like two years, I think. And then I went back to the library a few years ago, and it was for sale, the books they were getting rid of, so I had to buy it. But for me, it's kind of... It's one of those books that, yes, it's a work of fiction, but a lot of it's so believable, I think, like the description of flying and description of battle. And the fact that the characters seem like real people, there's not the stiff upper lip, there's lots of swearing, there's lots of bullying, there's lots of quite horrible characters in it, like Moggy Catamol, you know, quite a famously horrible individual, but the sort of person you'd want in your squadron rather than the enemy. And I got into this in the 80s, and I don't, I think, was it like 86 or something like 88, maybe when they did the um, TV version of it? on LWT, um, which obviously they used Spitfires rather than Hurricanes because they didn't have enough to fly at that point. And it was uh, Ray Hanna or Mark who flew under the bridge quite famously. Yes, he did, in MH434. Which, let's face it, if you tried to make that now, what's the chances of getting someone to fly a real Spitfire under a bridge for a, a TV show? Well, Ray could make things happen. <laughs> Put it that way. Ray was the former Red Arrows leader and... Uh... He was very respected even then, but he was one of those guys, I guess there was a, a touch of barter about him, N nothing like, I mean, Ray was quite, you know, softly and politely spoken, don't get me wrong, but uh, there was a touch of, well, we can do this, 
and we will, and we'll do it well. Ray tended to make things happen. And look at all the film work that he and Mark did, you know, not just Piece of Cake, but Empire of the Sun, going forward to the likes of Dark Blue World, all sorts of, and Memphis Bell, you know, all sorts of things. So the Hannah's made things happen. And, but you're quite right, that scene of the Spitfire flying under the bridge will live long after we walk on. Very famous. If you Google Ray Hanna, there's a lot of low-level flying he did as well that was sort of caught on camera, which you think, you just wouldn't do that in a Spitfire now. No, you wouldn't do that in a Spitfire now. You probably didn't do much of that at the time. But uh, but like I say, there was, there was no greater exponent of the Spitfire than Ray Hanna, so fair play to him. John, how about your choice? Okay, well, uh, having to read so much at work, I think I'm a little bit of a lazy reader at home, so I tend to go for ripping yarns that really kind of engage me and then you can't put them down, or, on the other hand, kind of picture books. And I've got an example of each here. So first up is a book called Chicken Hawk by a chap called Robert Mason, who was a pilot in Vietnam. But he flew Huey, Bell Huey, UH-1, Iroquois helicopters. And it is a real homage to that aircraft. You kind of fall in love with the aircraft as you read the book. He almost kind of personifies it, gives it a kind of sense of humanity about it. And it, and Because basically it keeps him alive. That aircraft can do the most astonishing things. So he describes how you could he could land it in, or anyone could land it in, uh, very small clearings, and the blades, the rose blades, could chop down surprisingly large trees and, and bamboo plants, which I have no idea if that was possible. But um, so it, this book is really gritty and honest. It's not in any way kind of a typical American movie style thing where they just win everything it, it's about fear and it's about death and the death of friends and it's really about how his relationship with this aircraft that keeps him alive so he, he obviously he was in he was in nam in the late 60s but he did this book didn't get published till 1983 towards the end of the book the last chapter also does take you through that period post-war and it describes the effects of PTSD on him and actually it, it kind of finishes on a really low point because things do fall apart for him and you just kind of hope at the end that maybe some money that he got for writing this book would have would have helped him turn his life around so it's a real roller coaster of a read and actually I read this when I was a farmer for, for one summer in about 30 years ago sitting in a tractor waiting for the combine to put its flashing light on so I had a lot of a lot of time sitting and I read this book and it was just yeah so compelling that, it, that I couldn't put it down has anyone else read Chicken yeah, Hawk yeah that was another charity shop find for me when I was living under I found a copy on the King's Road for about one pound something really beaten up old copy and much the same as you I wasn't that familiar with the whole sort of Vietnam stuff but some of his experience and he just talked an awful lot about fear and how scared he was I think and it kind of also, you know, when you think about what did these guys do after the war, where do you go after you've had that experience? And I think he's quite honest that he struggled, didn't he? Yeah, so, um, I mean, it goes all the way from, it starts actually, I think, with his training in Texas and goes all the way through that the, the war period. But it's just really insightful as well, the detail in it. It's obviously, it's not written by an author, it's written by a pilot. And I think that's maybe what separates it from a lot of, of books, where you could, you know, an author can go and do good research, but if you've lived that, that does bring an extra depth to uh, and knowledge to the the whole sort of experience. There was a term in there that I really liked that stuck with me. It was the Jesus nut on the road. So if that comes off, your next stop is Jesus. Yeah, there's lots of little things like that, aren't there? There are there's some real humour in there, and amidst this complete carnage that was Vietnam. So you now I've 
recommend it for anyone. And, you know, most people think of, of aircraft books, you think of aeroplanes, but the Huey was just such an icon. And I think this, this book really does it justice. So my second book is actually the picture book, uh, or largely a picture book, and it's called Ghosts, and it's by a, cap, a chap called Philip McCanna. So I trained as a photographer, and I was kind of aware of Philip McCanna's work, and it's probably amongst the best air-to-air photography in the world. And then somehow you, I ended up on Flypass, and the next minute I'm exchanging emails with the man himself, who is now in his 80s and kind of retired from photography. But he's done... His kind of um, opus, if you like, is Ghosts. So it's a beautifully produced square, large coffee table book featuring dozens of, well, pretty much all the major aircraft from World War One and Two, um, And the photography is sensational. And along with those pictures, you get a spec panel on the aircraft, you get an, one historic image. Usually they're quite interesting historic images, not just a picture of a plane, but some sort of uh, human interaction with that aircraft and and little quotes and things like that. So it's very dependable. It looks awesome on your coffee table because the cover is just stunning. And then almost every spread that you turn is just, it's just a stopper every time. You just kind of soak up all the detail from these amazing images that he shot over. I think it was nearly 50 years of photographing airplanes in the air. Yeah, I think it's the same as you. I wasn't really aware of how big McKenna was, but I've got a copy of that one. Well, I'm showing to the camera, no one else can see it, but yeah, Ghost of the Skies. But from 1995, it was the last present my grandma bought me before she passed away. So it's got a couple of special sort of memories for me, but it's amazing, the photography in it. I mean, obviously, we're reproducing these photos and fly past now, but I mean, Steve, you'll know, he's a, he's a legend, isn't he, in terms of aviation photography? It absolutely is a legend. It just struck me that um, some of the you know the really great air-to-air aviation photographers have all got their own individual style in the same way that maybe writers have. Like you can almost tell a McKenna shot from a John Dibbs shot from a Darren Harbour shot. They're, they're all really really good, but you can kind of you can almost tell who's taken which. And that's there's something beyond my ability to comprehend really as a non-photographer. But there says something about their own, bringing part of their own, I guess, soul to bear on it, which I think is quite striking. It separates them, the greats, from the from the very good, shall we say. Yeah, I think if you know about photography, you know how hard it is just to get a picture, just to get a sharp picture with propellers blurred. That in itself is a task. So to do that and then create something beautiful, and I think what Philip McKenna does really well is chooses the backgrounds, so quite often they're out of focus, but it just adds a depth and an interest and an environment, if you like. So it's not just a blue sky. You can see it's above jungle or desert or the sea. And I just think his pictures generally have that little bit extra that that lift them above the rest. Excellent. That was quite an interesting podcast, to be honest with you. I think I'm going to take away a few recommendations from there. I think I'll definitely go and uh, download Propeller on my Kindle. Propeller head, yeah. All right, James, next time I see you, I'll just give it to you. Well, let's leave it there, shall we? And I'm sure we'll do another team talk sometime in the future. Thanks very much. This has been a podcast from Key Aero, your aviation destination. Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. 
Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.